You are listening to the Startup Playground. Show where I invite entrepreneurs, startup founders, and game changers to talk about their success stories, learn from their mistakes, and hear about their interesting experiences. Hey, podcast! Welcome to the newest episode of Startup Playground Podcast. As always, it is your host, Elvis. And today we have someone who has worked in a great organization such as Yahoo, Informatica, Trustpilot, Unity, Revolut, and many more. Have lived in seven different countries over 15 years. His name is Nicholas Blair Silvestri. And now, after all the experience and knowledge gained, he decided to start his own company called The Platypus. Now I would like to invite Nicholas to join the conversation and tell us more about the platypus. Hey, Nicholas. Hey, Elvis. How was your week? Busy, very, very busy. Tell me about it. What did we do? I mean, we're in the process of initiating the next round of funding. So that's always very, very time consuming, of course. And then at the same time, we're obviously working on the product. We're early days, so there's basically always 50,000 things to do in one week. So it's uh, a lot about trying to prioritize what needs to happen and what can be put on the side. So always busy, fun, good week. So it's must be fun to be an entrepreneur in this age. It is extremely fun if you like to build stuff, yes. Tell me about uh, how is being actually an entrepreneur, you know, all this moving, fast-paced environment with, you know, a lot of, you know, challenges, you know. And also you have been through so many companies, so yeah. you must have a huge experience. I think I had a, a lot of experience working in startups, but what I've realized that Working in startups, even if uh, it's early days, like I joined Trustpilot when we were 30 people, so it was very early, if you think about it. That's giving you experience about what's going to happen, but it's not, uh, I don't think there's any way to get ready to become an entrepreneur, to be honest with you. I mean, if I look at uh, everything that has uh, happened since we started the business uh, on the 27th of February, uh, so like what, less than seven months ago, nothing prepared me for what we've done over the last seven months. I think the experience of working in companies in startup has certainly helped. But uh, you could say that it's just experience in general that has helped and not systematically the one of working in startups. So I think being an entrepreneur, it's the way I look at it is you need to be like a Swiss knife and uh, being ready to uh, think about problems you never had to think about before. You know, Tegan Spinner, he sent me a really funny gift. How we see how the uh, startups are, you know, it's from Mario game yeah. and how actual it is, you know, for all the lasers and all the obstacles yeah. and everything. Yeah. So, you know, it's... um. From my own perspective, you know, because I've been in a couple startups before, you know, it's a never-ending, you know, road of, you know, like obstacles. And, you know, you always like are challenged and every day you wake up, you never know what's going to happen. Exactly. I think it's, uh, I, I like to uh, compare it a lot to having kids because I have two kids. There's a very uh, romantic idea about, oh, yeah, I'm starting a business and it's going to be fun and it's going to be exciting. And uh, people like to painted, you know, with butterflies, puppies and unicorns, and it's beautiful. But the reality is, uh, <laughs> it's not as pink and rainbow as, as this. Just like having kids, you know, people, people tell you how oh, you're gonna have kids, it's amazing and everything. Yes, it is, but it's really, really hard. And it's never a day that's the same. And it's just extremely challenging and exciting, of course. But I think people should be a little bit more honest of like how hard it is. That's also a question regarding the kids, because you just mentioned, you know, because while I was going through your LinkedIn profile, one of the things that I noticed is that you are father of two kids mm -hmm. and also you have some personal interests, like hobbies. Yeah. 
Could you maybe tell me about how do you manage with all this, you know, variety of tasks, two kids, and plus hobbies? You know? Yeah, so I think the real answer is I don't manage. But uh, jokes aside, so uh, I think the, the... So I'm 39, right? Two kids, started a business. I have hobbies, like uh, I used to be very big into rugby to play the sport, but uh, loving to watch the game. The World Cup is actually starting uh, right now. I'm going to try to, you know, squeeze in a few, uh, few games that I can watch. I love to cook. We bought a house with, uh, with, my, house, uh, with my wife three years ago. So I like to uh, work on my house, uh, whether it's, you know, painting, a bit of plumbing, uh, cutting the wood, getting the wood in and everything. So, I mean, all those things I, I love to do. One of my biggest hobby, one of the passion actually I have is to build a Lego set. I mean, uh, sometimes when I say this, people laugh at me, but I find this, uh, it's a little bit like my yoga, basically. I find this extremely relaxing. So, like, that sounds like a lot of stuff that I like to do, uh, plus uh, starting a business. So, yes, it's absolutely insane. I think um, it boils down to a few things. Another thing I think where people should realize is that um, if you start a business, you need to be with the right person around you, not only in the business, but in your personal life. I think people don't talk enough about the support you need to have from your personal life, whether it's family, partner, and so on. Because if you're not with the right person in the business or outside of the business, there's even less chance of succeeding. And I think we all know there's already not many chances of succeeding when you start a business. Everybody think, yeah, we're going to make it. I think I'm going to make it, but like many of us don't make it, right? Um, so I'm, I'm, first of all, very lucky and very grateful that uh, I have an amazing partner uh, at home, my wife, uh, who's very supportive. And it's not been easy. I mean, you can imagine starting a business when you're married, two kids, you have a mortgage and you tell your wife, hey, by the way, you know, I'm going to leave like a very uh, good and healthy job and uh, we're not going to make money for the next six months. And uh, I hope we have some saving on the side because, you know, so it's been a long discussions, but she's been very supportive and I'm very lucky. Regarding having kids, um, I think it's uh, very lucky to live in Denmark. I think Copenhagen is very good for this. We know it because it's very uh, easy to drop the kids, pick up the kids. Luckily, uh, the Vogels do and the Bornholm uh, are pretty close to where we live. That's very helpful. We have the grandparents, the parents of my wife, they're around. They're very help I mean, they're helping a lot around picking up the kids and everything. I personally like to come to the office super early, between 8 and 8.15 so that I can try to be home around 5 p.m. I know it doesn't sound like crazy hours, um, but I try to do as much as possible. Then the kids, I'm, I, I mean, I can't do the Lego anymore, but I can still do the cooking. So the cooking became very much my yoga. I cook for like 30, 45 minutes for the family. And that's where I really brainwash myself outside of like forcing myself to not think about the company. Family time, dinner, reading for the kids, putting the kids to sleep. By 8.30, they're asleep. And normally I try to squeeze another hour or two of work uh, after that. Um, and I'm trying to talk, you know, with US potential customers and everything. The weekends are very much family. I try to work as well a little bit in the weekend, but focus on the family, on the house. So it's very much about um, prioritization of your time. You realize that there's 24 hours. You pretty much need to sleep at least six. Huh? Uh, otherwise, it's not healthy. So what do I do with the the um, 18 hours left that I have in the day. And unfortunately, rugby Lego became uh, basically uh, squeezed out of this. Uh, you just told me like a, a rush of things that you do. And then the only question I have, how much hours do you sleep per day? Not much, to be honest with you. So I think I'm lucky enough that I don't need a lot of sleep. And uh, I'm lucky enough. I say I'm lucky enough, not because of the work, because my kids are not good sleepers. So I think for the past, my daughter is four and my son is two. So I think for the past four years, I probably slept like five to six hours per night. They wake up every night, whether they come to my bed or they wake up and I try to put them in their bed. They're not good sleepers. My son uh, is two. He wakes up at basically 5.30, between 5.30 and 6 every day. So I'm up early. 
it's a lifestyle uh, that's not a chosen lifestyle, but I mean, you get used to it. And uh, again, you make the best out of it. It's really about like uh, whatever the situation, right? What is the best outcome I want to make out of this situation? And uh, damage limitation, I think. I mean, anyway, works for me so far. And I mean, that's the, you know, on the personal life, uh, but uh, I'm lucky enough, I guess, uh, as well, that uh, on, the, on the work life, my two partners are very understanding of starting a business with kids because Philippe, one of my uh, founders, co-founder, has two kids as well. So, uh, and they're even younger than mine, so he understands. Dan doesn't have kids, but uh, well, he started a business with two guys that have two kids, so he understands and he has to understand. Uh, and I think it's going to shape a lot the culture of our organization on how we want to manage this kind of, uh, you know, work-life balance and so on. It's critical to us. Yeah, I totally agree with you. What's your personal life goals, Nicholas? I mean, you have family, you have yeah. kids, <laughs> you have uh, sometimes hobbies, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. a startup that you're building up, a huge experience. Yeah, I think personal life goals, it's a, it's a very broad term. So if I look again and divide, you know, like uh, the, the personal and the, and the professional. On the personal uh, side, I want to be a good father. I want to be a good husband. By this, I mean, I want to that the people around me are happy. I'm a, I'm a big believer that uh, you can be a force of good or uh, of bad uh, in this world. That doesn't mean, you know, like trying to be good doesn't mean you're good all the time. It's impossible. Of course, you fuck up and everything. But then again, it's damage limitation. Realize when, realizing when you fuck up and uh, learning from it and, and not fucking up again, right? I don't know if I should say this as an entrepreneur and especially, you know, uh, if we're looking for funding, but for me, family comes first, always. That's how I see it. On the work side, on the, the platypus, on the, on the business side, my life goals, I want to have what we're building is going to have a positive impact on people. It's going to have a positive impact on people and on the organization. And that's what I want to do. I want to limit mishires and people ending up in the wrong organization and an organization hiring the wrong people. We tend to look at it as like a company perspective. You know, it's bad for the company to do mishire. And very often we don't look at it on the personal perspective. But I mean, it's terrible for a person to end up in the wrong organization. It's a terrible experience. You feel like shit, you question yourself, you question your skills, you question your personality. Um, so the idea is really to try to be a force of good, both for individuals and organization on, on what we want to achieve for Platypus. And then you also comes depression and all that other <laughs> Big stuff. Big time, and yeah, yeah. Suicides and everything else. It has, it it's super heavy. Again, like if you look at articles and you find like, you know, a cost of mishire, it never talks about the individual. It talks about the organization. It tells you that organization, oh yeah, mishiring somebody costs $50,000 or it's like a 12 to 18 months of salary. Great. Let's put as well the person in perspective. The pain it is to end up in the wrong organization, the frustration, the stress. Like you said, people get depressed from this because there's pressure. There's pressure to succeed. There's pressure from the outside. Like you start in a, let's say, what people assume is a great organization and people are like, what do you mean you're not happy there? You're not you're not allowed not to be happy there. It's a good company. You need to perform. You need to be happy. And, and we're trying uh, in our own scale and our own level to help and limit uh, mishires for both sides of the equation. On a subject that you said about not being happy and everything, you know, maybe you have read about Johnny Ive and that he left Apple. Have you no. heard the story? No, no, no. So Johnny Ive uh, recently, he, uh, many years ago, he left Apple. But officially, I read it online, you know, a couple of days ago that he have left Apple because, you know, one of the reasons was because, you know, first of all, Steve Jobs died, right? Yeah. And he was really closely working together with, you know, designer team yeah. and Johnny Ive and everything, right? And that's what Johnny Ive liked, you know, because he was always inventing new things. Yeah. If you see the pattern of iPhones, you know, for example, iPhone 6, 7, 8, and 9, they were exactly the same. One-to-one, mm -hmm. -one, if you put them together, I mean, a little differences. And the thing is because, you know, the new CEO 
is more money, you know, focused. Mm -hmm. He more cares about the profit rather than about, you know, the value that Apple was delivering when, you know, Steve Jobs was still there. Mm -hmm. So that's why also uh, Johnny Ive left because, you know, he was kind of, his wings was cut because he wasn't allowed to invent new things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's also kind of up to subject because, you know, you have to feel happy where you are. 100%. And I think, if uh, I was at, in Apple and if I was Johnny Ive, you know, I would do the same thing. Yeah, you know? 100%. I'm a big believer. And I know it sounds very privileged because I guess you can only leave a company if you already have a job in a company. But I'm a big believer of the moment you're not enjoying what you're doing anymore in an organization, you should leave. You should. Because, I mean, if you look at it again in terms of data, right, on average, you're going to spend, what, seven to eight, probably more hours per day in an office. So um, outside of like, uh, you know, if we take somebody who's sleeping normally, so not me, let's say you sleep eight hours per day. So that means that gives you, what, 16 hours of being awake per day, right? Half of this you're going to spend in an office with people around you working on some stuff. Or not in an office if you're doing another job, right? But the bottom line is, if you're not enjoying what you're doing, I personally uh, don't see, I cannot stay in an organization if I'm not happy. If I'm not engaged and if I'm not working on something that I find either like impacting or exciting or I'm learning something new. And I would strongly tell people uh, that if you're arrive, you know, if you're always grumpy when you come to the office or if you leave and you're always like, yeah, I'm so happy to leave, you just uh, change, find something else, do something else. I mean, I know it sounds very easy and I assume it sounds patronizing and everything and it's not always possible, but I think more often than not, it's possible. And people are just putting themselves into like, oh no, you know, like uh, the, the fake safety of like, yeah, but uh, it's, it's hard to find a job and everything. It is, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. It's super important. Happiness, yes, big time. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Nicholas, on this one, because you have to be happy where you are. Yeah. The next thing I would like to know, because, you know, you told me about the story and about a little, you know, introduction about platypus and what the problem, you know, the platypus is solving. Mm -hmm. What was your driving force of becoming an entrepreneur, you know? You know, because you were in such a big company, you know, after, you know, mentioning before, like, Trustpilot and everybody else, you know, and then you decide to kind of like, oh, I don't want that all. I want to start my own company. Yeah. You know, why? So I'm like, genuinely, I was never the type of guy that was like, I'll start my own business. It was not part of my like a career plan or business plan. Or I was happy with building an organization for people. Uh, I know what I'm good at. And, uh, and I was like, uh, again, you know, it was the timing as well. Uh, two kids and everything. Like, I mean, it's not, there's no perfect scenario to start a company. There's probably some scenarios that are better than others. So uh, there was no driving force. There was more like um, the realization that I had a concept, an idea that seemed to me and, and uh, the few people I talked with about uh, the concept uh, early days, everyone was like, that's, that's a pretty good idea. That's pretty solid. It could work. And then it's a question of, uh, you know, fit to market or time to market or whatever. And I guess, you know, I can't really uh, tell you two minutes ago about like, yeah, you should be happy in what you do and everything. And then have an idea that potentially is a good idea and say, no, I'm not going to take the risk myself. So there's always a level of risk. I just thought it's a good idea. People are always saying like, oh, uh, you know, uh, I didn't get the opportunity. I didn't get the opportunity. I think it was for me, it was more a matter of like, if I don't do it, I'll regret not doing it for the rest of my life. Just uh, do it. See what happened. What's the worst that can happen? It fails. You learned. And then you look for another job. I mean, uh, yeah. That's true. That's so, uh, so we just started. <laughs> that was it. One more thing that I read on your LinkedIn profile, you know, I really kind of like that description that you've written about yourself on LinkedIn profile, you know, 
and the first sentence, you know, like, thank you for, you know, stopping by, yeah. by my profile. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Really catching. And also there was mentioned that, you know, platypus partly came out as an epiphany. Yes. Could you tell me? Yeah, 100%. So it's very cliche, but, uh, but it's absolutely true. I had, um, so uh, on the 9th of January this year, I had a knee surgery because I used to play rugby a lot and rugby is, you know, not super smart in terms of the body and everything. My uh, right knee was uh, in a very, very bad shape. I needed to uh, redo the ligaments, cut some part of the meniscus, I mean, uh, like proper heavy stuff. And of course, when you do a knee surgery, you're stuck in bed, you're not allowed to move for like, a, I think I was... Uh, absolutely not moving for four weeks and then I had eight weeks where uh, I had like this uh, Robocop like uh, stuff on my leg I mean uh, nightmare and of course I couldn't go to work um, and uh, I was doing a lot of uh, video game specifically I there's two games that I uh, I've been playing for years there's one that's called uh, Civilization uh, for the people that uh, know about it amazing game where if you like to build stuff I mean it's amazing and the second one that I've been playing since 1999 is Football Manager and the same football manager is all about building. It's about management, finding the right players. It's a lot about coaching and, and so on. And I was very heavy into football manager at the time. So I was probably playing uh, three, four, five hours per day because I was alone at home and the kids were at school and everything. And um, playing football manager, plus, of course, doing a lot of overthinking because I had nothing else to do. On the 29th of January, um, something else I need to add is when you do knee surgery, you're in like very intense pain. So um, uh, they give you morphine to uh, sleep at night and to cover the pain. And on the 29th of January, and I, I strongly believe it's a mix of morphine and football manager, uh, at two o'clock in the morning, I woke up because I had an epiphany moment of like uh, this, uh, like in the cartoon, you know, when they put the bulb next to the head of the person, very much like that. I woke up, I woke up my wife, I'm like, love, love, I think I have a great idea. And she looks at me, she's like, it's 2 a.m., the kids are sleeping, I mean, get out, just get out, go and write your idea. I went down on my computer, wrote the first uh, draft for the concept of platypus. I still have it today and it's amazing to go back to it because we're still very close to it. But of course, it's evolved so much since, uh, since the 29th of Jan. But it was this very much this epiphany moment, this realization of like, this is an idea that could work, that could have an impact. And, uh, and what do I do from there? And the day after, on the 30th of Jan, I uh, talked with uh, my co-founder, Dan, and uh, told him about the idea, the high-level concept told him how uh, the idea came up. First, he looked at me like, okay, yeah, you were high on morphine and uh, <laughs> whatever. But, uh, but then after talking a little bit more about uh, the idea, the concept, the impact it could have, uh, he was like, you know what? It's, absolute, it's actually not a complete, you're not crazy. Maybe there's something. So we started talking a little bit more about uh, um, the, the vision, the steps and so on. We did a bit of a very early days. I don't even want to call it prototype, but more like play around. And we're like, okay, we're onto something that looks doable. Two days after that, on the, the 2nd of February, we uh, contacted the, the third co-founder, Philip, um, because we're building a software, a SaaS uh, product, HR, and uh, none of us, uh, Dan or I, are uh, uh, engineers, so, uh, so uh, we don't have the skills. And, and you know, another thing about being a founder is that you need to realize very quickly that you're not good at everything, that you're not supposed to be good at everything, and that you're supposed to focus on what you're good at, because otherwise it's a waste of time and energy to try to be good at everything. So very quickly, we needed somebody that's good at building stuff, right? And Philippe is an engineer. We talked with him. And interestingly enough, out of the three of us, Philippe was the one that always thought he wanted to start a business, but never really had like, you know, the, the, the sparking idea. So we sat down, we talked, uh, vision and all. And uh, that was on the 2nd of Feb, on the 3rd of Feb, the 4th of Feb. We met three days in a row. 
And then we were like, yeah, fuck it, let's do this. I mean, uh, again, what's the worst that can happen? I mean, uh, you know, two of us have kids, married, mortgage, worst case. I mean, you know, worst case, we sell the house. And we talked more on the 27th of February. We officially registered the organization, the Platypus APS, with our lawyer. And then we all, uh, I mean, in the meantime, we all resigned and then talked and so on. On the 1st of March, we officially started in my basement because we didn't have any money and we wanted to... Uh, we wanted to spend some time together uh, because early days, it's, it's so important to spend time together because so much is being built. It's like a constant uh, evolution of the idea and everything. So uh, again, lucky enough that um, there was some free space in the basement. We got like some desk, uh, free stuff that people were giving us, sat down, the three of us. And very early days, we started uh, engaging with um, via my network. Lucky enough, I'm, you know, uh, 15 plus years of experience in HR and recruitment, talking with potential customers or ex-colleagues on the ideas, the concept of like, if a product like this would exist, would they buy it? What they were thinking, the plus, the minus, and so on. So uh, getting some, some feedbacks, I guess, or like market fit information and so on. And again, like I think very early, and that's a massive plus, I have to say, like the fact that I worked in so many startups, I have a very good network in the startup scene in Copenhagen. Very early on, uh, when I was like, okay, this is going to happen, I talked to uh, Peter Mulman, the founder and CEO of uh, Trustpilot. Uh, he came to my house. Uh, we had a coffee. He was supposed to stay 20 minutes. He stayed an hour and a half. Showed him the idea, the concept, the high level. Uh, and he told me, uh, you know what? It's, uh, it's a good idea. I'm going to introduce you to some investors. So very early through my network, I have to say that's a massive plus, the network that I have. Uh, we got to discuss with, uh, with some uh, investors with uh, Seed Capital. Obviously, we were way too early for us, uh, but they introduced us to Pre-Seed. Um, then I talked with uh, Neil Murray from Nordic Web, pretty fast, and Neil is connected to basically everyone in the startup scene in Europe. So he opened a lot of doors for us. Within five weeks, we flew to London to Seed Camp uh, to pitch. That, in retrospect, was a massive mistake because we were not ready. And, uh, and if I look at the deck that we showed, I mean, I'm so ashamed nowadays, but, you know, you need to learn, you need to fail. Uh, the trip was great. Yeah, so everything went, went very fast on that front, at least at the, you know, the, the initial steps of, like, the concept, the idea, the team, and, uh, and uh, starting to talk with investors, which I think is super critical. If you feel you have a good idea and, and you're ready to execute as fast as possible, it's never too early to talk with investors. That's what we've realized. And, and on top of it, I mean, you'll very quickly realize as well if your idea is shit or not, because they will tell you because they don't want to waste their time. So, yeah. I don't know if that was a very long answer. <laughs> no, no, that was really good. And, and I'm really amazed, you know. I mean, nobody sees me, but, you know, I'm amazed in that sense. And I have a, a bit weird question because also, you know, I checked a lot your LinkedIn profile, you know. Mm -hmm. You're like the, if any company would look for a person... I would say, I mean, I don't want to use the perfect candidate, but, you know, you really, like, fill a lot of boxes. Therefore, there is the question, you know, you have a, such a good experience level being in many companies, but you haven't written any articles. No. Is there a reason for that? You know, because if you would really go for, you know, like, selling books, you know, really about experiences of entrepreneurship and investments and everything, yeah. I think it would be really passive income for you. Yeah. 
But somebody has to write a book because technically, I don't think you have time to write a book. No, that, I was going to tell you this. I was like, okay, then, then here goes like two hours out of my sleep hours, six hours of sleep. Uh, but no, I've never written any kind of articles on, uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, I go to a lot of conferences. I'm invited a lot to talk about uh, recruitment, culture, uh, processes. And uh, I've done it uh, for LinkedIn, uh, for Unity, for uh, Nordic Recruitment Day and so on. I don't know why, to be honest with you. I never really felt the need to do it. Uh, I think it's a lot about personal branding, I guess, and, uh, and uh, sharing. I'm always, I mean, when people reach out to me on LinkedIn, I'm always happen to have a, have a coffee and discuss and everything. Maybe I think, like, the truth is probably I'm, I feel more confident when I'm face-to-face, -face, uh, when I talk about things, or, like, when I do conferences, than maybe writing an article. And uh, I think I like to discuss and exchange more than maybe writing something that's, you know, a definite. I think as well, the, the good thing with discussions or, or um, even conferences, when you do a pitch and somebody is, a, or you present something and somebody is questioning something that you just said, you there have the opportunity to maybe realize that, you know what, what you just said is right and I was wrong and now you changed my mind and it's great. When if you write an article, it's very much written in stone what you write. Not that I'm afraid of being wrong, I'm wrong all the time. I mean, uh, I don't know, it's a good question. Maybe as well because I'm not an English native, as you can hear with the heavy French accent. And uh, my uh, friendlish writing is not perfect. So uh, I don't know. I guess it's a mix of all this. But I've been told you're not the first one who told me this. And I've been told, especially now with the context of uh, platypus and so on, that uh, some content and some uh, branding uh, would, be a, would be a good idea. Maybe a podcast is actually a better, uh, you know, version or a vlog for me. Uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll need to very much think about it. But uh, I don't think you're going to see some articles from me on LinkedIn tomorrow. I don't, I mean, no. no, no, no. I don't Maybe think pictures. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you are engaging with content, you know, and, and, and that I'm really happy for that, you know. And also, you know, you're a really inspiring person when I'm listening to you right now. Thank but you. That's very nice Maybe, I mean, you should think about, you know, maybe, you know, making your own podcast or maybe making a vlog, yeah. you know, because, you know, we always are, you know, with our phones and, you know. That's true. It's easy. You just push a play and then film it. You know, sm small series of, you know, every day is going to, in overall, create, you know, your some passive income, some, you know, increase the follower base, you know, increase, yeah. you know, the known. So think about it. I, complete, I think you're completely right. And, uh... Yeah, it's just a question of, uh, of timing. And, uh, and because again, if you do something, either you do it well or you don't do it. Yes. Right? And at the moment, I feel that if I try to do something, I'm not going to do it well. And maybe the results will be completely the opposite of the idea, right? But uh, it's, it's a very good point. It's a valid point. Now I would like to know more about platypus because, you know, you already told me a lot, but, you know, there are still a lot of things to find out. Yeah. Could you tell me the story behind the name? How did you come up with the name? Yes, very good. Uh, Everybody's asking us. In Danish, I discovered it's uh, Nebdur, uh, and my Danish is shit, so I hope that's actually uh, uh, <laughs> platypus. In French, it's uh, ornithorynque. Why platypus? The three co-founders were obviously, you know, we were looking for a name. We had the concept before the name. I guess that's what normally happens. And uh, we were looking at uh, what do we do, what we're trying to achieve as an organization, the goal of the company, uh, the, the process and so on. And we were like, should we, we wanted something that's like natural, you know, like it needed to be in nature, a tree or an animal. And then we, uh, it's, yeah, don't ask me why. Again, I'm trying, I'm trying to walk you through our, uh, you should have seen, I mean, we were like, like writing to, uh, we, we, at this time, we didn't have Slack. So we had like a messenger group on, on Facebook and we should at some point just pull out all the stuff because there was so many, like, yeah, fun stuff in there. 
But um, the whole concept about platypus, it's uh, the fact that uh, it's one of the weirdest, if not the weirdest animal on the planet. Um, you know, like a beak uh, looks like a duck in the front as, the, as, a, as a tail goes in the water, lays eggs, but it's a mammal. I mean, it's very strange. It's very specific. And, uh, and if you push the idea, it probably shouldn't exist, right? But in the right environment, in the right space, it's happy, it's thriving, it's existing. And, and our concept is that there's no bad or good organization. There's no bad or good culture. There's just you not being in the right place. And it's about finding the right spot to develop, to be happy and thriving, just like a platypus. So I guess, in a way, to us, like everyone is a platypus and uh, find the place that's going to make you thrive and develop. That was the whole idea about platypus. Um, and on top of it, it's a very cool animal. Like now we've read so much about it. We were even looking at uh, uh, seeing if uh, you could adopt one, uh, uh, but uh, they don't uh, let them, uh, you know, it's only in Australia and everything. So uh, we, we'll have to adopt one online or something like this at some point. But yeah, it's, uh, that, that was the idea about, um, about the name. Uh, a lot of people have told us it's going to be a shit show in terms of SEO, which I appreciate. But I think it really represents, the animal really represents what, what we're about and what we want to do. We're different and uh, just be different. I mean, uh, that's it. I totally agree with you, you know, on the name. Um, I, don't, I don't think that, you know, yes, maybe, you know, by the, by the fact, you know, and by, you know, statistics, you know, maybe the name will not, you know, succeed in SEO sense. But, you know, it's, it's all about, you know, I believe that people nowadays, they buy what are you selling and why are you selling rather than, you know, what are you selling. So basically, people are buying the values. Yeah, yeah the values. Yeah, I agree with you. And I mean, um, I mean, I very much believe if we do something right and if we build something, if we build something that I think can have the impact that it should have, then uh, the fact that it's difficult to find in the SEO, I mean, uh, I mean, it's all your job, you know, exactly. how much you want to be, you know, yeah. ranked there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. During my visit at your LinkedIn profile and seeing your past work experience, I was wondering, could the platypus be the product of all the experiences gained before? Meaning that uh, after all the organizations worked before in your 15 years, as I'm not mistaken, hopefully, yeah. you saw the gap in recruitment of people or how did this idea kind of ep epiphany? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Good question. I very much so. I think the concept of platypus came from uh, the fact, the very simple fact that if you look at uh, any kind of recruitment process, whether it's internal, external recruitment and then whatever the organization, that everything is very much data-driven, right? You know how many candidates are coming in, whether it's passive candidates or active candidates. You know your funnel. You know how many, uh, what's the percentage of candidates uh, going from application to screening to first interview, second interview. You will systematically do a technical test, whether you hire like a, you know, engineer, a salesperson, marketing. So again, that's very much data-driven. You have data about your time to hire, cost of hire, quality of hire. Recruitment is data, 100%. The only part that's not data-driven is culture matching or culture ad. In, I don't like the term culture fit because it doesn't exist, but culture ad. Adding culture to the recruitment process, not data-driven at all. And few reasons for this. Um, number one, companies don't really know their culture. I mean, uh, they like to have, you know, beautiful words on the wall or mission statements like, uh, you know, integrity, respect. I mean, uh, people love those ones. But the fact is they don't have real data, actionable data about their culture. And because of this, when a recruiter, hiring manager, or HR talk to a candidate, they have a personal bias of what their feeling is the culture of the organization is, whether generic culture of the organization or the department that's hiring, right? Number one. 
Number two, they will, because of this, try to see um, uh, some cultural values or cultural traits within the candidate that's, again, based on wrong data or personal bias data. And then, <laughs> again, like personal bias of trying to see this in the person. And on top of it, the candidate on the other side, I mean, we've all been candidates. Like uh, if I go for, for an interview at Maersk, I'm going to tell you, hey, I dream of logistic at night. You know, I dream of boats and everything. So every candidate is trying to be perceived a certain way in terms of values that they feel is going to be the best match for the organization. So at the end of the day, you have companies that are not knowing their culture and, uh, and everybody loves this term, employer branding, and uh, let's call it for what it is. It's like, how do I bullshit the most people possible to you know, get them to apply to my jobs? Because again, employer branding most of the time is based on just um, how the company wants to be perceived. And then candidates that are like trying to get the job at all costs, so they're probably lying on, on what's important to them in terms of values. Because of this, actually, like uh, I read a very interesting article, 46% of the people that are hired, and this is you know, globally, 46% of the people that are hired are going to leave, whether they leave or they're being fired, within the next 18 months, right? 89% of those 46%, 89% of the people leaving is due to cultural mismatch. It's because there's no data. It's because personal bias everywhere, right? And, uh, and I just felt uh, <laughs> that's a pretty big problem. And, uh, and uh, let's try to uh, tackle this. Let's try to change this, right? Let's try to bring data when there's no data today. So what do you got today? Um, and uh, you could call it competitors, but, but it's not really competitors. It's just a different way of looking at it. So you have a lot of personality tests. You have Myers-Briggs, this, Big Five, and everything. And whether I believe they're good or not, it's not even the question. Myers-Briggs, this, or Big Five, it's a one-on-one -on -one thing. It's to see if you, Elvis, and me, Nico, can work together. But I can't really take 15 people and do 15 personality tests and, and try to say, like, so what's the average personality in the room? It's doesn't really function that way, right? On top of this, personality is just an angle. I think our belief is that uh, we could have exactly, you and I, the same values, same things are important for us, but our personality are very, very different. So our personality is how we're going to express those values and not the other way around, right? So what we've uh, decided to build, and we've based it on, uh, on our experience, we've based it on a, a lot of uh, content that we read around culture within organizations and, and values within organization. We have um, Florence Vilsech, who's an associate professor at CBS. She has a PhD. She's helping us with the methodology around the data we're gathering. We're gathering. But basically, the, the idea is we build a personality or sorry, a personal profile, values profile based around four big families of values, 12 vectors of culture, so three vectors of culture for each family. And we ask you, what is important to you? What do you care for? Is it work-life balance? Is it compensation? Is it diversity within the organization? Is it structure? Is it career development? And, and we have these tools, 12 vectors of culture. We give you a budget of points. The only rule is use all the points. But if you want to put all your points in compensation, because at the end of the day, you only care about money, who am I to tell you it's a bad thing? It is what's important to you. Great, right? Now, Within 15, 20 minutes, because we want to step away from, you know, four hours and 450 questions and you want to shoot yourself after 30 minutes, within 15 minutes with our methodology, we build a personal profile based on your values, right? The trick now is how do you build a company profile? What do you compare it against, right? And our methodology, our concept is culture is not decided from the top. It doesn't work like this. It doesn't work like I'm going to write around the culture of the company. No, culture is your people. If you have enough people pushing for a certain value, if you have enough people in your company pushing for work-life balance, that's either going to become the culture of your organization or you're going to lose your people, right? So what we do is we ask everybody within an organization, um, and uh, our clients, they have like, you know, 
50, uh, 60, 70, uh, 150, 200 uh, um, people, 3,000 people. It works. There's no limit to the size of the organization. Everyone is building a profile with our methodology. And, and very clearly, two things. Number one, you're not telling me about the organization. You're telling me about yourself, about what is important to you, right? Number two, it is anonymous. Your manager, HR, they won't be able to look at your profile. Again, this is important because that's your opportunity to be authentic and genuine about what's important to you. So imagine 150 people in an organization building their profile. We then gather all this data and we've built an algorithm that's based around culture bearer. The higher you are in an organization, the more impact you have on the culture of the organization because you take decisions for the company, because people look at you as like you're the, you know, you're, you're the leader and so on. Second thing is the longer you've been in an organization, the more impact you have on the culture of the organization. Of course, you can, not, you, can, you can be like not managing people, but if you've been in a company four or five years, people perceive you as you know, an anchor of culture within this organization. Then we look as well as, are you sitting in the headquarter or a satellite office? Because that's going to influence how many people you interact with and if they're like important players or not on the cultural scene of the organization. We're looking as well at the size of your department. And we are now looking as well at Slack or whatever you know, internal uh, messaging tool you're using in terms of the usage, because the more you use it, the more you interact, the more you influence. Beautiful algorithm that we've built internally, and we have like a dedicated algorithm for each organization, right? We take these 150 people, put it in the algorithm, and what comes out is basically a cultural map of your organization, because I now can tell you what are the core values of your people. What do you people actually care for? And this is the culture of the organization, not the beautiful words you put on the wall. The beauty of this is. Now I can show you what's the culture in Copenhagen or in New York City or uh, per department, per location, per gender, per age group. And in terms of recruitment, finally, which is, you know, the goal of the organization in the first place, in terms of recruitment is when you hire, let's say, for Copenhagen Engineering, I can show you the subculture of Copenhagen Engineering, meaning that all your candidates are going to build a profile with Platypus. And we can now see who's the best match in terms of values to that sub-department. But by experience, I can tell you this, you might not always want to go for the best match because potentially maybe as a manager or as like top management, you realize that the culture you have in Copenhagen Engineering is not good or you're not happy with the values and you want to change this. And you can now actually target a different set of values within your candidates to create, you know, diversity of thoughts or positive conflicts and bring people that are going to challenge the current organization values. So it's a tool that's all about finding the right spot for the people, for the individual, for organizations to recruit faster because they're going to talk to less people. And uh, if you recruit faster, you're going to recruit cheaper because your recruiters can do more um, and obviously limit the risk of churn due to cultural mismatch. Well, we are, you know, you, you told me about all this one, that uh, you, what the, the thing that you're saying is that everybody knows how to write beautiful things on their homepages, on their walls, and yes. everything, right? But, but the companies really don't know what are they looking for. I don't think they do, no. I mean, from experience, uh, like, like you asked me, like, uh, why did I build this? From experience, I've seen companies working on employer branding. and I, No, we don't know what we're looking for because we don't know what's important to our people. And therefore, like, how can you know what you're looking for? But isn't, isn't, isn't the company culture a core of, you know, building a business? When, you know, building a business that you have to know, like, you know, some, you know, ingredients. When the you're problem is, um, is uh, how you define culture, what you see from culture. Culture is not static, right? It's not a picture. I mean, it's changing whenever you hire somebody, whenever somebody is leaving, it's, it's just evolving constantly. So that's another thing with the, with the Platypus as a tool is that you're able to track the changes. The moment you hire somebody, we merge that profile with your current profile. So you see the change that's going to impact your organization in terms of culture, right? 
But uh, again, I think the, the, that's the problem. That's the gap in the market, right? Like people don't know their culture. There's a lot of amazing tools out there in terms of uh, employee engagement. So you can know if your employees are engaged and, and they're happy. That's great. But you can't really use it for recruitment. And what we're solving here is like get the right people in your organization. And right people doesn't mean always culture fit. Again, I hate that term because how can you be fit to something that's not static? It means culture add. The person that's going to be the best, like uh, adding to what your current are in terms of values. So when you say like a uh, um, culture, everybody talks about, you know, we have a great culture in the company. We have a great culture in the company. Based on what? Based on you being happy there? Great. But that doesn't make it a great culture potentially for somebody else. I've worked in an organization where I was not happy. It was not, a, it was not a good place for me. It was not a good culture match, right? Or a good cultural ad for me. But I know a lot of people that still work in this organization. They're happy. They're developing and everything. So it's very much, again, the idea of like, it's not a box, right? It changes and everything, but it needs to be the good match for you. You need to find the, the good spot for you in terms of organization and for the organization to finally know what's important to their people and therefore finally being able to tailor what they want to see in terms of culture. One of the biggest questions that I personally have, because I've been in this, you know, time when I have to be hired in a company. Mm -hmm is regarding the perfect candidate or as companies state in their emails when they're responding to your application, best match. Yeah. In my opinion, there is no perfect candidate. Yes, you know? right. And when given the right tools, magic can happen, you know. However, after graduating in 2018, I applied to over 100 companies and got the same automated response. And before I was coming here today, I found some of them. You know, and they usually write something like, we really want to thank you for putting the time into your applications mm -hmm. for marketing engineer, taking time to review each application carefully, as we know the job hunting is stressful. And then they write something about, unfortunately, we have decided to not take your application further down and, you know, proceed with the next candidate. Yeah. That's one of the things, right? And I have exactly the same. That sounds similar, but you know, the wordings are different, you yeah. know, but the end sentence is actually the same. So what are the characteristics that today's candidate has to have, in your opinion? You know, what is this best match that every company is stating in their emails? It's very, very hard to answer. So first of all, those are uh, um, automated reply. Every applicant tracking system nowadays, basically, you receive all your candidates and you can... Uh, you know, it's basically a CRM. Uh, are they moving forward in the funnel or not? Um, and then you do the list of all the candidates you're rejecting. You say, I want to send the email on Monday morning. You press, everybody's going to receive the email. Thank you for applying. And for Anjali, blah, 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 blah. Okay. What's a good candidate? I think it really depends on the organization. I think is the organization aware of, you know, what their values are? I always, and you can see, you can find it on, the, on YouTube. I think I started talking about like hiring for culture match or culture fit at the time I was, I was saying um, in like 2012 or something. I think culture trump skills. I think having somebody that's going to be aligned with your values, and I'm not saying you hire a plumber when you want to do sales or marketing. Of course, you need the person to have a certain level of skills. I'm completely against hiring perfect candidates, somebody that's exactly what you're looking for in terms of the role. That's stupid to me. If the person can do exactly 100% of what the role is, why would they take the job in the first place? They're not going to learn. They're not going to develop. I mean, it's boring. So I personally believe of like trying to hire people that are probably 60, 70% of what you want in terms of the role. Like this, they can grow, they can learn. You probably have them like one to two years in the role. If you have somebody for less than two years in a position for a permanent role, you're basically losing money. Basically because, because it costs too much to hire and because the person is not going to have time to grow and so on, right? 
And if you hire somebody that's 100% of the role, they will leave before the next two years, 100%, because they're going to get bored and other people are going to reach out to them. Um, and that's just in terms of skills. I strongly believe you need to hire people that are going to be a good match or a good fit or a good add to your culture. Because if somebody is not exactly what you're looking for, they're going to import faster, they're going to be happier, and therefore they're going to perform better. It's, to me, everything is linked to the values and the culture, right? So best candidates, that doesn't exist. Perfect candidate, that doesn't exist. Companies saying like, we're looking for the perfect candidate, perfect match, that's bullshit. Uh, again, it's not static. The truth of yesterday is not the, the truth of tomorrow in terms of the candidate. You're obviously not the first one uh, to uh, ask me about like uh, why I've got uh, so many rejections. Uh, I think uh, I'm assuming that it was in Copenhagen for the two positions that, uh, that, that you're telling me about. I think Copenhagen is super, super, super competitive on certain roles, on, on certain departments. I also applied, you know, yes, I applied in, in Copenhagen, right, a lot of places, but I also applied in the place where I'm coming from, Latvia. Yeah. And they were giving me exactly the same answer. Yeah. It's not even about the CV. I, th I think in a way, like it's almost they sold like job spec or the way I hate the way uh, job ads are on today. Like, you know, bullet points. Bullet points makes me want to shoot myself because basically bullet points, you're telling people that if you're not having one of the requirements on the bullet points, you should not apply. I strongly believe, I want to see videos actually. Like, that's what I'm trying to, uh, I was trying to implement in a uh, in few of my last roles. Forget about job specs, put a video of the hiring manager explaining what is the person going to do. I don't care your background, like this is what the role is about. If that turns you on and if you feel that you have, you know, the level of skills and engagement that's going to be needed for that role, apply. And okay, again, if I'm looking for a front-end developer with Java or some shit like this and you're applying with, uh, you know, uh, I have uh, two years of, uh, of uh, plumbing, of making pizza, probably they're not going to talk to you. And, and because as a recruiter, uh, you can't talk to everyone. It's impossible. That's another thing that you need to take into account as well is that on average, you get what? 50 to 100 people applying to a job, and that's an average. That means there's some roles, especially in Copenhagen, there's some roles that probably get two, three, four hundred applicants. I know a lot of recruiters don't have a good press. It's not an easy job, I can tell you. It's, uh, it's very tough. It's very stressful. You get to reject a lot of people, uh, whether by email. Very often you need to uh, reject, you know, like your recruitment funnel. Like to hire one person, you're probably going to need to screen 15 to 20 people. That means you're going to have to say no to 15 to 20 people. Nobody likes to say no to people. Nobody likes to hear no. It's a tough job. It really is. And it's a job that's changing a lot. Uh, it's a job where you get a lot of pressure from the business to be as efficient as possible, as fast as possible, as cost-effective as possible. And you get pressure from the candidates because, you know, I mean, you've sent your CV, so why am I getting a shit uh, automated reply? I made, uh, I've, put, I've put my heart and soul in my CV. I, I feel I deserve that job. I feel this organization is perfect for me. And uh, it's tough, man. <laughs> it really is. It, it really is, yes, Nicholas. I totally agree. I mean, I've been there. I've done that. Yeah. And, and, and now I'm in the position where I have to actually hire people. What I do when I'm hiring people or when I'm taking in, I'm giving them the chance to meet me. Yeah. Giving them the chance to express their feelings. Because as you mentioned before, everybody can write beautiful words on a piece of paper. Yeah. But, but when it comes to actually doing the action, the story is completely different. When I was a student, we had a lecture about uh, company culture, and they mentioned a company called Zappo. And what they said, that Zappo has really great company culture. So therefore, the question for you is, what does good company culture consist of? Good question. I think, again, it's very, very... Um... So what does it consist of? Um, it depends what you want to do with this. Is it like uh, it consists of, uh, it's great to, uh, to uh, use as employee branding. Hey, uh, we have Friday bars and a ping pong table and everything and people have fun. 
Is it great because you look at it in terms of retention? People are staying and they're working longer and they like what they're doing. Is it great because you're looking at it as a... I mean, there's so many different angles with, uh, with culture. Again, I think from personal experience, you know, over the last uh, seven years, I've worked uh, at uh, Trustpilot, Falcon, Unity, um, Revolut Picon. They're good companies. Some of them were a better match for me. But me, in terms of my values, about what's important for me, some of them were a good match for me seven years ago when I was not a father and uh, with two kids. And of course, my values and uh, what's important to me has changed. I don't believe in, again, in a good and bad culture. I believe, are you a good match for this? Is it something that's aligned with what's important to you? Because then it's going to be a good culture for you, right? Uh, that's, I think that's the angle I, I want to put into this. I've worked at organizations that were an absolute nightmare for me in terms of my values and, uh, and what I want to do uh, when I work in an organization. But again, like uh, in this organization, I still have, I have some good friends that still work there and they are very, very happy there because for them, it's aligned with where they are in terms of values and what's important to them. So I don't think there's good or bad culture. There's toxic people. That's a different thing. There's toxic behavior. And again, I've seen that as well uh, in a few places. But it's very difficult to tell you what's a good culture. I could tell you like Platypus was seven now, great culture for me. But maybe somebody that's completely different than me in terms of values, they would come in and say, okay, this is shit. I'm, I'm hating it. It's this whole term of like great culture. Like again, something that I really hate in job specs, you know, in job description. We have a great culture. Everybody's happy. That's bullshit because it's not possible. We do Friday bars and we have a ping pong table. Great. Is that actually what your people want? Do you know if that's what your people want? Or do you, like, again, personal bias perceive that if we put a ping pong table and give them free booze on Fridays, they're going to be happy? Because this, to me, is not culture. If you need alcohol to be able to spend, you know, time with your colleagues and, and have uh, fun with your colleagues, I'm not against alcohol. I mean, I enjoy having a beer, you know, and having a chat. But if systematically you need to have booze to spend time for your colleagues and your, and your workforce to stay because there's free alcohol, then I don't really describe this as good culture. That's, you know... It's a tough one, this, uh, this whole idea of what is good culture. How do you define it? Um, is, it uh, is it employee engagement? Is it uh, retention? Is it... Uh... So what you're saying is that each company has different company culture. 100%. And, you know, 100%. You know, I cannot say like, oh, this is a good company no, culture. I, I think it's about trying, if you're a candidate, uh, trying to understand the organization as much as possible, gathering content as much as possible. Glassdoor is uh, a piece of shit and uh, full of uh, wrong data. So I would not go to Glassdoor. You can easily go on LinkedIn, find the people that work in the organization. You can find people that have worked in the organization in the past. Be, be turned into like Pikachu detective, find some information, get to know what you want to target, make your own decision. You know, like uh, you can't look at uh, job specs uh, because of course people want, like job specs, you need to look at it. Employee branding, the idea of employee branding is having as many people as possible applying to my job. So uh, uh, are they going to tell you exactly the truth? Do they know exactly the truth about their culture? No. So the best way is, you know, go around, find data, find people, talk with them, get your data, get your information, get to know the organization. If you go for an interview process, maybe ask, okay, like, uh, can I have a coffee with uh, one of my future colleagues just to, you know, chat, get a feel about how people interact with each other in the office. Is it something where you could feel yourself working? Try not to be blindsided by like big names of organization. Again, like Google, Facebook, Apple, they're great names and they're great for some people, but that doesn't mean that they would be great for you. I think, again, it's time to maybe realize that uh, I should not want to work in an organization just because it's a good name as an organization. They might not be a good match for you.
Yeah. So you have to understand what's your values, what yes. you what you can bring to the company, and yes. then you know apply based on what they're offering. Yes. Or asking for. I would like to thank you, Nicholas, for this insightful talk and sharing the vision of Platypus. But before we end this conversation and place the cherry on the top of the cupcake, I would like to do a quick sum up of the things we had been speaking about. So for those who listened, today we had Nicholas Blair Silvestri, co-founder of the Platypus startup on a mission to eliminate mishires and people ending up in wrong companies through placing emphasis on each individual personally. In the beginning of this episode, you, Nico, said that you see entrepreneurship as a Swiss knife and that you have to think about problems you didn't need to think before. Also, we spoke about the downsides of being hired in a wrong company, such as depression, stress, lack of commitment, and even suicide. Therefore, it is important to be happy where you are. If you are not, then do something about it. Also, we spoke about it is important to have support in a relationship as well as outside those. Now, I would like to hear from you, Nicholas. What are the key activities that you would suggest other entrepreneurs to invest their time in to succeed with their goals? Right. Um... There's a lot. Huh? There's really a lot of things. And, uh, and again, I think it's very uh, person-specific. I can't really uh, tell you that I've read uh, tons of articles before about entrepreneurship and everything. I think I'm, again, like, I was lucky enough to be in organizations like uh, Trustpilot, Falcon, uh, Unity, and so on, because I was surrounded by great leaders. I think the best way to learn is really just to, uh, I would say, join a startup as uh, soon and as early as possible. Internship, you know, whatever, like uh, part-time. Look at how people are behaving, look at what's happening in the startup, look at uh, the mistakes, because there'll be a lot of mistakes. There's a lot of, uh, of course, a lot of literature and a lot of articles. Like I remember you asking me why I didn't do articles, um, but there's a lot of articles out there. Something I would do is uh, try to maybe look at, uh, you know, the, the top 15, 20, uh, 50 uh, VCs in Europe. Follow them on LinkedIn because they always share a lot of very good uh, uh, literature articles. And this is super good. One in specific I think is great if you're based in Scandinavia is uh, Nordic Web because uh, it's like a curated uh, email with information about uh, which startup raised money and there's always a, a lot of uh, lot of very good information. This one has been super helpful for us. Like I, I wouldn't hesitate just reaching out to people. I mean, uh, I know that uh, uh, unless I'm super busy, which is all the time, but uh, I wouldn't mind like having a coffee with somebody if they reach out and, uh, and chit-chatting. I don't mind sharing experience. I think most people are fine with sharing experience. Uh, it's just more about the timing of when you reach out to the person. But yeah, I would like document, document, document. But it's nothing is going to beat first-hand experience of jumping and trying to find. Like, if money is not a question, do it for free. I mean, uh, because, you know, startups, we don't have money, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, first-hand experience is what I recommend. What's your take for education, you know, nowadays education? Because uh, in one of the books that I also suggested, I read that the hardest thing to suggest a kid nowadays is to actually go to school <laughs> and after school get a good job. So what's your opinion on that? Do you think that, you know, going to school in this century era is the right thing to do? I mean, I, so like, from, uh, from what I see today and all the investors and the, all the uh, founders I've been meeting over the past uh, year or so, the legend of like, uh, I'm 22, I dropped from school and I start my own business. Yeah, okay, cool. Facebook, there's one. 
Uh, apart from this, the really big successful one, if you look at it, they're like older. Uh, that doesn't mean you're not going to be successful when you're younger. I just think it's harder because you have so much to learn. So in terms of studies, I don't think study is a bad thing. Um, if it's not for you, well, it's not for you. I mean, uh, I didn't feel it was for me, to be honest with you. More than, you know, studying for the sake of studying, I'm a big believer of like traveling and not traveling like I'm going to Thailand uh, for the summer. Um, I mean, like uh, going to a country abroad, working abroad, learning maybe a different language. I mean, it took me 20 years to learn English, but um, experience abroad, like um, broaden your mind. Um, because again, at the end of the day, startups, if you're going to be successful in a startup, is like how fast can you learn? How fast can you adapt? And this, you will put yourself in a situation where you have to adapt. So I would strongly suggest just go abroad. Great. I think that a lot of the listeners and also me, myself, I'll take your advices and a lot of key takeaways I get from this conversation of ours. Now, what's left is to share where people can find you and find the platypus and basically read about it, you know, mission, vision, statements and all the other stuff that you do. Yeah. So I'm easily find, uh, you can easily find me on LinkedIn. I think there's only one Blie et Silvestri family, so uh, that's uh, not complicated. The website for us, it's uh, theplatypus.io, all in one word, theplatypus.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, you can find us on uh, online. We have a landing page. I don't want to call it a website because it's still very, very uh, early days. But we, we, again, like just with the articles, we haven't been super active yet on the SEO and uh, content and so on on the website, uh, neither on uh, LinkedIn or Facebook. But I think the best way to reach out is anyway LinkedIn. You know, my grandma, when she was still alive, and a lot of other people have said to me that good thing come when you wait. So I guess that, you know, with this landing page and articles and everything, you know, you have to take one step at a time and then, you know, proceed further down when you're ready, kind of proceed. I mean, you can never be ready as yeah. we agreed in the beginning, but, you know, there are some, you know, moments where we are ready. No, exactly. And we prefer, I think, to, uh, to produce good content that, uh, than content for the sake of doing content. So... Uh... That's true. We're focusing on the product and so on. Quality before quantity. Exactly. I will thank you again, Nicholas, for this lovely conversation. Thanks for joining me. And, and I really enjoyed all the thing. I hope that also your first experience in a podcast was yeah. exciting. That was cool. Yeah. Thank you very much. And uh, I also hope that the listeners have enjoyed. And that will be it for today. Thank you much. Thank you so much, Elvis. Have a good day. Bye-bye.